Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the debate on what to do about gun violence continues and the legacy of the Reverend Billy Graham in Minnesota. But first, this week at the state capitol in St. Paul... These senators and staff are here with minds and hearts to fashion laws across all that could potentially divide us out of love for the people of this state. Give us grateful hearts that open our eyes to one another. Amen. A lot of people sending up prayers for a lot of different things as state lawmakers begin the 2018 legislative session. MNN's Bill Werner has a recap of the first week's action. Scott, the first order of business was swearing in two new members. In the House, late Crystal Republican Jeremy Munson replaced Representative Tony Cornish, who resigned amid allegations of sexual harassment. Do you solemnly swear to affirm that you will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Minnesota? So help you God. Congratulations. Munson sworn in on the House floor as Moms Against Gun Violence rallied outside. We'll come back to that with Scott in just a bit. Over in the Senate, Cottage Grove Democrat Carla Bigham replaced Senator Dan Schoen, who resigned after sex harassment allegations were leveled against him. So help you God. I do. Congratulations, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. You look at transportation, you look at health care, look at funding our schools. These are not partisan issues. We should be able to, to get things done for the citizens of Minnesota. As is usual before a legislative session, Democrats and Republicans pledged to get along. But tension on the Senate floor began in the first seconds of the 2018 session. Senate is under call. We want the record to reflect uh, my objection to Lieutenant Governor Fishbach presiding over the Senate. So noted. Said Fishbach. The state constitution is very clear. Uh, Senator Fishbach is the Lieutenant Governor. Uh, and it's also very clear that you can't hold two elective offices. Says Senate Democratic Minority Leader Tom Bach. I would like them to leave it alone so we can actually do the people's work. Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka argues there's ample legal precedent that a lieutenant governor in Minnesota can also serve as a state senator. Democrats say a 1972 constitutional amendment overrides that. Senator Ron Latz. I think there's an uncertainty now about everything that the Senate does, uh, kind of like the original sin. I mean, she gaveled us in. I question, I, I say she didn't have the legal authority to gavel us in. On that note, lawmakers will move forward with the main tasks of the 2018 legislative session. One is a revised state budget, if necessary. They'll know if it is at the end of the month, when the latest economic forecast comes out. Governor Mark Dayton and legislative leaders all think it will project a surplus, rather than the deficit that last November's forecast predicted. If there is red ink, depending on the amount, lawmakers will have to trim spending. If there's extra money, they'll have to decide which interest groups get it. And there are plenty of them calling at the state capitol. The second main task of this 2018 legislative session is a bonding bill for public works projects. Governor Dayton has proposed $1.5 billion and says that's less than he would like. $1.5 billion is a very responsible bill and is frankly inadequate for the scope of the needs. Republican House Speaker Kurt Dowd is talking about half of that, $800 million. We're open to discussions on, on less than that or you know, potentially more than that if the projects are right. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says, I'm 
open to a bonding bill. Um, I thought it should be significantly less than a billion dollars, but what that number is, is is part of the negotiation. Now, the important fact here is that Republicans need Democrats' help to get the supermajority that's required to pass a bonding bill. House Democratic Minority Leader Melissa Hortman says the single most important thing lawmakers can do to create jobs is pass a healthy-sized bonding bill. With interest rates low right now, but definitely projected to rise, we absolutely should borrow and build now. Senate Democratic Minority Leader Tom Bach says... I'm going to propose that we do a billion-dollar traditional bonding bill, and then we do an additional bill on maintenance. Already eyeing those state bonding dollars are numerous interest groups, not the least of which is the University of Minnesota. President Eric Kaler was at the Capitol this week rounding up support for a $238 million bonding request heavily weighted toward maintenance and repair of existing buildings at campuses in Crookston, Duluth, Morris, and the Twin Cities. Simply deciding not to fix something doesn't mean it gets better on its own. Maintenance that is continuously deferred uh, simply gets worse, and at some point that space becomes unusable. Uh, and we have to replace it or find alternatives. The state's beleaguered vehicle registration computer system got lawmakers' attention again this first week of the legislative session. The Dayton administration asked lawmakers for an additional $10 million for ongoing work, but Hanska Representative Paul Torkelson, chair of a key funding committee, responded Republicans, quote, won't give the governor a blank check. We've really focused on trying to get this system working, but now with this request for additional funds, we feel we have to ask the questions about how did we get here. Senate Republican Majority Leader Gazelka said last week he's not ruling out additional money, but is irritated. It's like we're far enough down the hole that, you know, we have to finish it. But Gazelka says moving forward, he wants the state's IT department to have a different role. State lawmakers also have some serious social policy issues on their plate this session. Sexual harassment among them. All House lawmakers attended a full-day training session this week on preventing discrimination and sex harassment at the Capitol after House Speaker Kurt Dowd mandated... If members choose not to participate in that, uh, they will be removed from their committee assignments and they can explain to their constituents why they don't serve on any committees in the House. Rosso Republican Dan Fabian called the training session a good way to look at things through a different lens, maybe, and make some adjustments. I look at it as a growth experience. When I was teaching school, I never looked at teacher evaluations as being some sort of a combative thing. I looked at it as a personal growth time, and I hope that people are doing the same thing here. House Democratic Minority Leader Melissa Hortman says beyond training and policies that affect just the capital, legislators need to ask whether current laws are doing what's necessary to prevent sex harassment in all Minnesota workplaces. I would posit that they are not strong enough right now, and they do not provide a means for redress for people in workplaces all across the state. Lawmakers are also dealing with fallout from a Star Tribune investigative series on abuse, maltreatment, and neglect in Minnesota nursing homes and other facilities. Dr. Deb Singer told lawmakers how she found her mother in a nursing home. She was laying at an angle with her legs hanging over the front rest, blood on the floor, the footrest in the back of her chair. Her entire neck was bruised. One of her hearing aids and a stuffed kitten toy had given her on Tuesday were on the floor under her footrest. There was an odor present, and as I surveyed the room, my stomach turned. She clearly did not die peacefully. A special task force recommended tougher penalties and more transparency in investigations of elder care abuse. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters will return in a moment.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. What to do about guns? The debate has begun again in the wake of the most recent school mass shooting. I spoke with Protect Minnesota's Nancy Nord-Bentz, who thinks more can be done to protect our children from events like what happened in South Florida, and with Chris Dorr of Gun Rights Minnesota, who says tighter gun control is not the answer. We begin the conversation with Nord-Bentz about a proposal to ban AR-15 assault rifles. Well, at Protect Minnesota, we don't support statewide bans of assault-style weapons, but we do uh, strongly support a national ban on assault-style weapons um, because they can just do so much damage so quickly. And with a large-capacity magazine, it's very hard to stop a rampage shooting once it starts until the shooter has to stop and reload. Uh, and so in, in, the, in our minds, the best of all possible worlds, um, semi-automatic assault weapons would have a, a federal ban or would be included under the National Firearms Act, uh, which is the same act that, that closely monitors who can have access to a fully automatic we- weapon. Um, it is a great concern that someone with a history of problems, someone whom we're told, um, again, we don't have a lot of facts, but the facts that have come out so far are saying that this is a young man who had been expelled and who the teachers had been warned not to allow him on campus with a backpack. Clearly, this was someone who had a history of problems, um, was able to, at age 19, purchase a semi-automatic assault-style weapon. Um, in Florida, there are no other... You, you have to be 18 to purchase an assault-style weapon, but beyond that, um, it's just as if it were any other gun. Um, in Minnesota, we're a little bit more protected. If you're purchasing from a federally licensed dealer in Minnesota, um, in order to purchase an assault-style weapon, you do need to have either a permit to purchase um, if you're under age 21, or if you're over age 21, you could have a carry permit, and you, that would enable you then to purchase a semi-automatic assault-style weapon um, in Minnesota. But Chris Dorr with Gun Rights Minnesota says banning the AR-15 is misguided. This is a, a non-military grade firearm. It's used in, in hundreds of thousands of homes across America. Uh, it's used for a variety of different purposes. The fact of the matter is murder was already illegal in Florida and in all these other states where these uh, mass killings happen. Further attempts to, to outlaw murder just aren't going to work. And and by, by trying to remove a tool um, you know, from the equation, a, a tool that thousands upon thousands of law-abiding gun owners use themselves to defend themselves, it's not going to save a single life. Protect Minnesota's Nord Benz addresses one of the key arguments made when tragedies like the Parkland shooting occur. Oh, this isn't a gun problem. This is a mental health problem. So I want to be very clear about this. In interpersonal gun violence, when one person shoots another person, interpersonal, mental illness is a factor only 4% of the time. Guns are a factor 100% of the time. So it, this idea that somehow we're going to say the problem is mental illness is, is such a disparagement to those who live with mental illness. DFL state representative and candidate for governor Aaron Murphy has proposed stricter background checks on gun purchases, but Gun Rights Minnesota's Chris Dorr argues... Well, uh, from our organization's perspective and from gun owners all across the state of Minnesota, the background check system and, and further attempts to strengthen it have, have been proven to be a joke and, and completely ineffective. 
all we have to do is run down the list of mass killers. Obviously, yesterday, that guy passed his background check. Jared Lee Loeffner passed his background check. Dylan Roof uh, passed his background check. The, the Vegas shooter, the Texas church shooter this last year, both Fort Hood shooters. The background check systems don't work. Um, and that's just those people who go through the normal systems of, of trying to get a background check. Um, you can think of um, the, the Sandy Hook shooter. He, he stole the guns from his mom, who had gone through the background checks. He killed her and then went on his rampage. So the background checks system, it does not stop mass killing. This week, as the legislature began a new session, hundreds of gun reform advocates gathered at the state capitol calling on lawmakers to consider gun reforms. Aaron Zamoff with the group Moms Demand Action says the movement for gun violence prevention is growing. We were living in Virginia actually when the Virginia Tech shootings happened and I was so upset. And then Sandy Hook, I was horrified and now I'm frankly outraged. We're just done. It's been enough. House Majority Leader Joyce Pepin from Rogers said any gun reform this session will require thoughtful discussion and added, We have to look at the issue as a whole and not just sort of be reactionary thinking we're going to solve the problem with some magic bullet. It's a huge complicated problem and it's going to take more than just trying to pass some bill on the second day of session. Governor Dayton said of the students who walked out of Minnesota classrooms in protest of gun violence this week. I salute them. I think it's courageous and, and important what they're doing. There will be marches in Minnesota and Washington D.C. next month and Dayton said. I've contributed personally a thousand dollars to the GoFundMe effort to bring uh, Minnesota students to Washington. Dayton says he's still in favor of closing the gun show loophole and requiring universal background checks. As for what parents can do to help their kids who may be frightened by what they see, read, and hear on the news about gun violence in schools, the U of M's Abby Gewirt says it's important to connect with your kids and listen first before sort of, you know, talking. Hear what your kids' concerns are, hear what questions they have. Gewirt says too much exposure to TV or news reporting of traumatic events may give children a skewed impression that the world is not safe. She says, Everybody needs a break, and we especially need a break after a horrific incident like that, a time to reflect without being the pushed news and, you know, updates and pings and there's another thing going and there's another tweet. As the debate about what to do next continues, one significant aspect of the story that stands out this time is that the survivors of the high school shootings in Florida are pleading for change. Who will hear their voices or what impact their pleas may have remains to be seen. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Reverend Billy Graham died this week at the age of 99. MNN's J.W. Cox detailed the strong connection the famed minister had to the state of Minnesota. At just 29 years old, Graham came to Minnesota first in 1948, Scott, as the president of Northwestern Bible College. He left a legacy at the school that would become Northwestern University. But perhaps most notably, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association had its headquarters in Minneapolis for over 40 years. Northwestern history professor Dr. Jonathan Den Hartog told me it was Graham's association with the state that stands as another example of Minnesota's impact on the world stage. This is a great moment to connect, once again, Minnesota with the world, that, that the work that the whole association around Graham did really did reach to all continents. 
wherever he's going around the world, he's saying, send your letters to the Evangelistic Association, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And so there's this uh, international uh, touch point for, of all things, uh, Minneapolis to uh, South America, to Asia, to Africa. And during the Cold War, it reached both to Western Europe and even into the communist bloc. So that's, that's quite an impact that Minnesota and Minnesotans had on 20th century history. Let's go back to the beginning a little bit as far as the beginning of him and his connection to Minnesota. How was it that this, uh, I guess, basically a country boy from North Carolina who trained at colleges in Florida and Chicago and then traveled the country already ended up in Minnesota as a college administrator? Right, yeah, we, we, should, we should highlight that. So after World War II, he has begun as an evangelist uh, working with an organization called Youth for Christ. It's at that time that he catches the eye of a pastor in Minneapolis named William Bell Riley. And Riley has a long history in Minneapolis pastoring First Baptist Church Minneapolis. And he's also the president of the Northwestern Schools, as, as our institution was known at the time. And Riley, who is uh, ailing, he's uh, in his... Uh, 90s, I believe, by this point, meets Graham, and he's really convinced that Graham is in a position to carry on uh, his legacy uh, at Northwestern as both a preacher and as a leader of the organization. And so December of 1947, he actually sets up a meeting, invites Graham to, to meet him. Really, Riley is almost on, on his deathbed, and uh, he just kind of uh, is a very makes a very firm statement that that he believes God has called uh, Billy to lead Northwestern, and even though uh, Graham was a little bit reluctant to do this, he he accepted that, and so he accepted the call. So that when Riley passes away shortly thereafter, Graham is going to take over as the president of Northwestern Schools in early 1948. At that time, he was the youngest college president in the country. It was a relatively short tenure at the time, and he wasn't as well-known as you mentioned. What type of impact did he have in the years he was at Northwestern? This really coincided uh, with, the, with the very same time that his name was, was growing. 1949 is often recognized as the year that uh, Graham's name really takes off because he holds a long-term and very well-publicized crusade in Los Angeles. So he's doing traveling. So uh, he will travel, he will preach, and then he will come back and he will do administration uh, of the college. So he's, he's in and out as, as president. I think that the time does shape him. It, it gives him a chance to work with uh, both administrators and professors at the school. Billy really enjoys hanging out with the students, not only teach them, but he'll have fun with them. Uh, he has a big impact for the school in that one of his contributions is he says, we need to have greater ways of communicating with the public. We should form a radio station. And so in addition to the college, uh, strengthening the college, he helps to found a radio station, which is still in existence in broadcasting as, as KTIS in the Twin Cities. Reaching out through media, he realizes that to have impact, you need to reach in multiple venues. And so it's really a, an interesting time that he's, he's helping to boost the college, even as the college, I hope, is giving him some good lessons that he'll then carry as he's growing more and more well-known.
How do you define the legacy that Billy Graham left to Minnesota in particular? I think the legacy for Minnesota is twofold. Not only having the association here, having a lot of people who knew and worked with and worked for Graham was meaningful. He also held a number of crusades in Minneapolis. So whether that was County Stadium, whether that was the Metrodome, but I went back and I checked this, and he held significant crusades in 1950, 1961, 1973, and 1996, all in Minneapolis. So that's a, that's a significant investment of work and preaching in the area, right? So I think the state can't forget his work here. How does the Billy Graham life story change, in your opinion, without his time in Minnesota? It is hypothetical, but, but it is important to think, right? So Northwestern gives him certain educational experiences, and it, it does provide additional publicity. So I think that's important. And also encouragement. And, and so I, I don't want to claim too much, but there is a time when he's considering whether he should continue in his work and in his preaching. And it's my hope and my sense that Northwestern helps give him continuity before his work really grows and expands. It is a turning point, right? So you can kind of narrate this as a time of, of, he always talks about the hour of decision. These were some years of decision that really helped to shape where his ministry and calling went from here as the ministry stays rooted in Minneapolis. Graham passed away Wednesday morning at his home in North Carolina. He was 99 years old. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Twins are now officially into their spring training schedule of games as they try to improve on a season a year ago, which included a visit to the playoffs for the first time since 2010. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm gives us a spring training primer on Minnesota Matters. Scott, the Twins were a postseason team last year, albeit just in the one-game wildcard contest against the Yankees, which they lost. They made some moves in the offseason to try to bolster their pitching rotation. They traded a minor league shortstop to the Tampa Bay Rays to acquire right-handed veteran pitcher Jake Odorizzi, who says he's happy to be in Twins camp in Fort Myers. It's great to be here in Minnesota. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of this organization. It's at the right time, too, the, uh, with the, what they did last year, making it to the, the postseason. I think it's a good, uh, a good lead into this year and everyone's looking forward to getting back there. Odorizzi says he's looking forward to pitching in Minnesota, a team which was very good defensively last year, especially in the outfield. Great defensive outfield and infield as well here. So, I mean, so it's very good, you know, as a pitcher when you're, you have that great of a defense behind you. Uh, but, yeah, going from going from KK to, to Buck is, you know, it's just a direct parallel, really. I mean, both phenomenal top two in the league of, you know, defensive center fielders. And it's, uh, it's a pretty lucky thing to go from you know one to the next so I'm really fortunate that I'm really you know looking forward to uh to throwing in front of these guys and hopefully get them some action keep them in the game and you know just let them do their thing. Odorizzi says he's slowly working on mastering his array of pitches during these early stages of spring training. Spring training goes on I start phasing in you know more of them start working on them in you know game as uh, game atmospheres and uh 
early on when you only have you know limited number of pitches to work with you can't exactly throw all of your pitches and expect to you know get results so once the outings get longer i start implementing more and you know using them as i as i progress so it's really important to you know get here stay healthy through spring training and obviously into the season as well but you have to get that build up period in spring training that we all need so uh it's important to uh you know to get your work in and phase it in over time in a league-wide manner, there's been a lot of discussion this offseason about trying to decrease the length of games from a time standpoint, which means there are some rule changes under consideration with the hope that if implemented, the pace of play will speed up at the major league level. Odorizzi is lukewarm on some of that. I'm not in favor of the changes that they implemented. Um, I think the mound visits is altering you know, the fabric of the game. You know, you need those visits at certain points in the game, especially late in games where you're trying to, you know, close out a game. That's the most important part. I don't think fans are going to be, you know, if it saves one to two minutes off of a game because you didn't go and talk that day, fans aren't going to care. You know, it's, you know, the 10, 15-minute range where it would start making uh you know, making sense, but obviously that's a huge, a huge difference. But, you know, one to two minutes that it might save compared to, you know, saving – if my my thought on that is if it's a, a new guy coming out of the bullpen whatever it is you know there's a lot of hard throwers in the game nowadays and uh if you're not on the same page as your catcher and you can't go out and talk to him you know if you think something soft's coming you get hit with a 100 mile an hour fastball you know in the chest or you know catch you in the mask or whatever it is it becomes a it becomes a health issue and i know that's a um, a rare circumstance but it's possible and when you're not allowed to go talk because that's a visit and you're out you might be out of visits you know it's uh it's just, like i said it's just altering the game in a way that it sh- it shouldn't be done in my personal opinion i'd much rather have just an in-between pitch clock because it doesn't really change the game you just get the ball throw the ball you know it's it's not like you're you're changing the the rules like this is on the field, the Twins open the spring training slate with an exhibition game in Fort Myers against the Golden Gophers on Thursday of this past week, and now the Grapefruit League schedule is underway in Florida. The real season, the regular season, begins on March 29th in Baltimore when Minnesota takes on the Orioles in the season opener for both clubs. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.